All right. If you have your Bible with you today, you can turn to Titus chapter 2. The guys coming down the aisles have Bibles. And if you're here and you don't have a Bible, you can uh, get their attention. They will be glad to give a Bible to you. That Bible is marked in the passage of Scripture that we will be examining this morning. And you are welcome to keep that Bible unless you are hoarding CBC Bibles at home in a collection, in which case you can turn the Bible in at the end. And I know some of you are out there that fit that description, but please uh, feel free to keep that copy of God's Word. We want everyone to have that. Obviously, it's been just me up here this morning. Pastor Ken and his family are uh, in Florida right now. They're taking they took Lainey uh, down for college uh, earlier this week. I believe she has to be in school uh, tomorrow. That's the, f- the first day for them at Clearwater. So he uh, texted me last night and told me that uh, he was praying for us today, that he was praying for you today, and uh, he also requested that we pray for him. And this is uh, the first child that he's sending off to college, and uh, I don't even want to think about that with my children um, but that's where they're at right now, so I'm sure that as excited they are as they are, uh, there's also some, uh, some sorrow there for them as well, so I'm sure that they would appreciate uh, our prayers. also wanted to let you know that uh, over the past weekend, uh, I and a few other guys from the area uh, had the privilege of going to Lake Drive Baptist Church in Wisconsin. Uh, Lake Drive Baptist is a church that uh, I believe in some ways has been uh, helped through our ministry. Uh, Kurt Leonard is the pastor there, and Kurt is a graduate of the same seminary that Pastor Ken and I graduated from, and uh, God is doing good things over there. Uh, we've, Kurt and a couple of his deacons have actually visited here before, and we've talked and uh, had ministry, two-way ministry back and forth with them, uh, but we were able to uh, participate in an ordination council and uh, question uh, somebody uh, named, by the name of Troy Fisher. Some of you may know Troy, but Troy had his ordination council and, uh, yesterday. So uh, I am just uh, very thankful, remembering back to my ordination council, that I was on the asking end of the questions this time and not the receiving end of the questions uh, because that is much more difficult. It's easy to ask the questions. It's harder to answer the questions. So I was glad to put the shoe on the other foot. Um, But it was a blessing to be at that church with them and see uh, what God is doing there. Okay, I've got you in Titus chapter 2, and we'll go there in just a moment. And I'm just going to say something about the space here. I think because we had the castle built out so far, you guys feel so far away. So I was briefly considering moving this whole contraption, but these are two pieces, so I'm not going to attempt it. But I'm going to try to get closer to you. Uh, because I feel like it's really far away, and I don't like that. Uh, Titus chapter 2 is the text that we're in. As as most of you know, uh, or at least many of you know, no, I'm I'm okay. As many of you know, my family is not native to Michigan. Uh, But we have actually grown, despite what you think, uh, we have actually grown to love this state. Uh, There's lots, lots of things to love about Michigan, There are these beautiful metro parks everywhere. Lots of them are connected by bikes. There are lakes and rivers and islands. There are Traverse City cherries, Mackinac fudge. There are all kinds of things to do around here. You can uh, go to a tiger game or you can go to the opera house. There are 
Uh, there's the UP if, you're, if hunting and fishing and camping is your thing. But one of the things that my family has enjoyed doing is, we've, as, is exploring this state. Because you can be in urban in 10 minutes, and you can be in rural in 10 minutes. And you can go over to the western side of the state, and they've got sand dunes. Who, who, who would have thought there are sand dunes at a lake? But there are, and they're beautiful. So my family has come to love just about everything about this state. We're from Ohio, so there's some things that we can't love. But we have grown to love just about everything about the state of Michigan. We love exploring it, and we love finding these hidden gems, these out-of-the-way places that are off the beaten path, Uh, a, a beach that nobody knows about, and so you feel like you're by yourself. Or a coffee house that has great coffee, but not that many people know about it. Or a great restaurant that's over on the western side of the state. We love, we love finding those kinds of places. And those of you who are interested in those kinds of things too, have told us about some of those places. Sometimes we, those places will refer to themselves, or we will refer to those places as Michigan's best kept secret. There's actually a website devoted to Michigan's best-kept secrets, and it's all kinds of activities and things that you can do around Michigan that are off the beaten path that not everybody knows about. And when they call themselves, or we call them, a best-kept secret, it's just a way of talking about something that's a great experience that very few people have. Very, very few people find it. This morning, I want us to consider something that I am calling Christianity's best-kept secret. It's an experience that is unfortunately off the beaten path for many of us. It's something that maybe we feel like we've experienced one or two times, but it's not, it's not a place that we regularly visit. That best-kept secret of Christianity is, unfortunately, grace. I think that grace, too often, is for many Christians off the beaten path, a great experience, but none of us are ever there. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor. Grace is God showering us with kindness and love when all we have earned by our behavior and by our thoughts and by our deeds is His wrath. But the question that I want to ask you this morning is this. How many of us live in the present reality that God accepts us and delights in us wholly apart from the works that we are doing for Him. How many of us are are basking in a regular, daily experience that God is showing us grace? How many of us see grace only in the past tense? How many of us think about grace as something that we look back to 
when we were converted, when we first came to Christ. It, it, it reveals the way we think about grace by the way that we talk about it, by the fact that, that God showed us grace back when we, con- we were converted. But how many of us are, are living in grace? How many of us realize that grace is present tense? How many of us realize that God didn't just want you to experience grace back then? God, only, God not only wants you to experience grace right now, you must experience grace right now. You and I are in desperate need of grace right now. I think that many of us are, are so frustrated in our struggle against sinful desires and we are frustrated in our abilities to cultivate godly desires because rather than living in the reality of grace, we are living in the reality of our own efforts. And so we constantly find ourselves on the treadmill of our performance, looking at grace as something that God showed us long ago, but our own effort is something that continues meriting His favor. And so grace becomes Christianity's best-kept secret. This hidden gem off the beaten path, it should be front and center of all of our lives, and yet few of us often go there. I'm afraid that we often think of God like a general contractor. We've had a lot of construction around here, if you haven't noticed. We spent all last year renovating this building. We're currently in the middle of uh, the process of knocking this wall out and and making this uh, room expanded even bigger. I have learned way more than I care to know about building construction. Way more. But one of the things that I've learned is that you have a general contractor. And it's the general contractor's responsibility to make sure that he looks at the blueprints and then he bids out to get the different disciplines to come in and do their respective jobs. So it's the general contractor's job to get the plumber and the HVAC people and the painters and the guys that work the heavy equipment and all those things. It's, it's the general contractor's job to make sure those people come in, do their work on time, and it's also his responsibility to pay them. Here's where I think sometimes we think God is like a general contractor. What I've learned is that the general contractor holds back some of the money for the subcontractors. Pays them most of it, but holds back some of it. And he holds back some of it so that the, so that the subcontractors finish their work. So once, once the owner has signed off that the work has been done properly, it's been done within the budget, it's been done the way it's expected, once everybody has agreed that yes, contractually we're good, then he, pay, he makes the final payment. But that, that extra money is just kind of sitting out there like a carrot dangling in front of the subcontractors just to ensure that they get the work done. Now, that's, that's not a bad business practice, but that's not grace. And God is not a general contractor. God does not come to us in our sin and give us a lot of grace but withhold some of the grace to make sure that you uphold your end of the bargain. 
The gospel is so radical and so different from anything else that we know because God just comes in and gives us grace. And he doesn't give us some of the grace. He doesn't give us most of the grace. He gives us all the grace. He gives us the grace without strings attached to it. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you grace, but I'm withholding this little part, so make sure you dance. Now, I've preached before. I taught a series a couple of of, uh, months ago on the role of works in the Christian life. There is a role for works in the Christian life, but works have nothing to do with grace. And God is not a general contractor dangling out the carrot of favor in front of us to ensure that, that we do the things that we're supposed to do. God just gives it. He pours out his kindness upon us without reservation, and he pours that grace out on us in such a way that it is not dependent on our performance. It was not dependent upon your performance when you first believed, and his grace is not dependent on your performance now. And we, we just can't conceive of grace like that. I mean, I'm willing to bet that some of you are thinking that can't be true. I've got to balance grace out with something else. God isn't concerned with balancing out his grace. He just gives it. It's extravagant. It's radical. The parable of the prodigal son is meant to get our attention because it is so extravagant and because it is so radical The way the Father gives grace. And that's the way God gives grace to us. He doesn't want grace to be Christianity's best kept secret. The reason the gospel is good news is because it is a message of grace that God wants to be broadcasted to the ends of the earth. He is called in Scripture the God of grace, and he wants to be magnified for his grace. He doesn't want his grace to be, to be a hidden gem off to the side, something that we don't tell people about because we're not sure if they'll obey after they hear about it. God isn't worried about that. He wants to show grace and be magnified for his grace for all eternity. The grace of Christ is not something for us to receive with our heads down and a muttered promise not to ask for any more. It's not something that he rations out. God wants to give us grace and does give us grace because he wants grace to have a shaping influence in our lives. See, we think if we have too much grace, we won't do what we're supposed to do. But, but the Bible sees it exactly the other way. God gives us grace, and grace shapes us into who we are supposed to be. Rather than inhibiting the moral transformation that we all believe is supposed to take place, because we do believe that we're supposed to change, right? We do believe that we're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. We believe that, but rather than grace inhibiting that, grace actually promotes that. And we can see it in the text that we're looking at this morning from Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. Here's what God's Word says. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness 
and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This chapter is all about how to conduct oneself in a manner that makes the teaching about Jesus Christ attractive. Preceding this, there, pre- preceding the verses that we just looked at are instructions. Instructions to older men. Instructions to younger men. Instructions to older women. Instructions to younger women. Even instructions of sla- to slaves in how they are supposed to interact with their, matter- with their masters. And all of this, the previous verses say, are to make the teaching about Jesus attractive. So we might ask ourselves the question, okay, the Bible is concerned about conducting oneself in a particular way. What motivation does the Bible give that we do hard things? Because the Bible requires difficult things of us. It asks young men to be self-controlled. As a young man, I can attest to the fact that is not an easy command, it, it talks about, about people who existed in a slave-master relationship, a very difficult relationship. To, to, it called slaves to, to respect their masters, not to lie to them, not to cheat to them, even though they may deserve it. What motivation is there to live in such a way? Well, we might expect that the warning would be that if, if, we, if we don't do this, we are imposing on God's good graces. The warning might be that things might start going wrong in their lives. If you don't obey this, there's going to be a direct correlation between God's blessing of you and your obedience. The moment you, minute you slip up, God's going to mess something up in your life. I, I, I actually hear that from people all the time. People mention to me, I don't know what I'm doing wrong for this to be happening. Like there's this direct connection with, of God waiting over us. Anytime there's a sin, boom, he gets us. Boom, he gets us. Do you realize if that's how it worked, your life would always be miserable? Because you're always sinning. And I'm always sinning. And God is, is constantly giving us grace instead. No, the motivation that's given to us in Titus, Titus chapter 2 is motivation by grace. He says to his readers, the Bible says to us, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And it teaches us to say yes to godliness. It is the grace of God that motivates us. And so I want us to see three things from this passage of Scripture this morning. The first is this. These are simple points, but the first is this. Grace teaches you to say no. Grace teaches you to say no. What do you do when you are confronted with an opportunity to sin? When, when you are having an argument with your spouse and you walk away after that argument and you now have a choice, am I going to make his or her life miserable the rest of the day for that? That's what we do, isn't it? (laughs) Because we're annoyed. That annoyed me, I'm going to get you. Or when we allow bitterness through work situations or family situations, and we want to roll that problem over in our mind, and we want to get angry about it, and we want to nurse that wound, and we want to refresh it again. Or what about when your friends make a lot more money than you, and you're tempted to jealousy. 
what did I do that I don't get to vacation in the Hamptons each year? I don't know if you're vacationing in the Hamptons, but I have a, my place there is nice. I don't have a place in the Hamptons, okay, for those of you who don't know that. Um, what, do you, what do we do when we are tempted to sin? How do, how, do we resp- how do we respond to those things? Because the reality is the Christian life is not devoid of temptation to sin, is it? A fellow by the name of J.C. Ryle put it this way, a true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience, but war within. So as believers, when we're tempted to sin, and I'm, and I'm talking about sins that are eternal, because sometimes they're uh, internal, because sometimes the external pressures to sin, we're worried about saving face. So we don't do those, because people would see. But I'm talking about jealousy and bitterness and selfish ambition, those things that are deep within our hearts, and when we're tempted to do them, what, what helps us say no? I believe that focusing on the grace of God does. Focusing on the grace and the love and kindness that God has shown us in Christ is not the only motivation for us to avoid sin. There are other motivations. There are warnings. For instance, the Bible tells us the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. There are certainly other valid motivations for avoiding sin, but I believe that, that the most effective and perhaps the highest motivation for saying no to sin, for, for letting go of bitterness, for letting go of retaliation, for letting go of jealousy, is to consider the grace of, that has been shown to us in Christ. How many of us think of grace as a deterrent to sin? We think that way because God is the general contractor holding that carrot out in front of us, making sure that he withholds just enough for us to obey. And yet the Bible turns it the other way around. The Bible says that people who have truly come to grasp the grace that they have been shown in Christ are not people who take advantage of grace, but people who are shaped by grace. I like the way one Scottish preacher put it. He said this, Terror accomplishes no real obedience. Suspense brings forth no fruit unto holiness. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin and withers all its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. Do you, see what he's, do you see what he's saying here? If, if we as Christians are constantly living under the, under the question as, of God accepting me, is, am I doing enough 
for God to accept me? How has my week been? Does God love me less this week than he did last week? Then we are constantly going to be on the treadmill of trying to earn up to what God has already accomplished for us. And so what God wants you to hear this morning and what God wants me to hear this morning is that we need to rest in grace. And when we feel the free pardon of the cross, it does what this quote tells us. It uproots sin. Because it's, it's getting it at its, its very root. Those desires for sin that, 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 are, that are down deep get yanked out. And they're replaced by grace with new desires that want to please God, that want to say no to godliness. And oftentimes, we spend all of our time clipping the top off of the weeds rather than yanking them out by their root. I have a, a, a flower bed, if you can call it that, in my front yard that I attend to once a year. And I start strong. There are two sides. And I want to do a good job because I only do it once a year. And so on the one side, I'm trying to grab those things as closely as I can to the ground and yank them out by the root and throw them into the yard. But I don't like yard work. And so for this, by the second half, I'm content to just rip the leaves off and be done. And it looks great for about two hours. And then the other side is like all, you know, chia pet with weeds. And that's what we content ourselves to do. We content to combat our sin at a surface level. We just try to stop doing it. We try to, we, we, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better. God, I, I'll, I'll do better tomorrow. But when we grasp the grace that God has given us and truly comprehend the fact that God has shown us all that grace in spite of what we have done, it has an effect of pulling sin out by the root. And it replaces those ungodly desires and those ungodly affections with new ones, new desires and new affections. So even though it seems like it can't be true because it so goes against our experience, you will find yourself growing in holiness and you will find yourself growing more and more in your ability to mortify, to kill the sin that is in your heart when you think more, not less, of the grace of of Christ. Let grace be your teacher. Secondly, grace teaches us not only to say no, but grace teaches us positively to say yes. Yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. As I've said already, when you see grace throughout the New Testament, you see grace not as something that's simply meant to be looked back on, But over and over again, the New Testament talks about the present experience of grace that all believers are supposed to have, that all believers are supposed to pursue. So rather than grace being something that is rationed, it's something that we are supposed to be comprehending and appropriating for ourselves and growing in our understanding in in greater and greater amounts. The more we learn to rest in the grace of God's favor, the more we are motivated to pursue growth because we are no longer pursuing growth from a vantage point of desperation. If if God's acceptance of you depends on your performance, 
then you are constantly failing. And I am constantly failing. And, we, and when we think we are succeeding, we are deceiving ourselves. And we do deceive ourselves, don't we? Have you ever come to church and, and thought that you could listen better and sing more and pray more because you felt like you had a good week? That's resting in my performance. But that's not grace. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Our text is not saying that we grow in holiness through passivity. Okay? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Because the words that it's using are active words. The Bible's telling us to live a self-controlled life. The Bible is telling us that we ought to live upright lives, that we ought to live lives that are godly. All of that suggests activity. But what is motivating that activity? It's the grace that we've already been given. It's the grace of God poured out to us in Christ. And we see this this active trust in grace all throughout the New Testament. For instance, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, the Bible says this, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So so resting in grace has a, a building up and a sanctifying effect on believers. Another verse in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 9 says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. The point of that verse is that if our hearts are going to be strengthened, let them be strengthened not by our, our performance, but, but be strengthened by grace. Rather than being Christianity's best-kept secret, God wants us to get to know grace more and more. For instance, in 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18, the Bible says, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Is it becoming abundantly clear that grace is present tense? That God has done something wonderful for us, yes, in the past, but that we are to continue in it. We are to grow in it. We are to stand in it. We are to appropriate it in greater and greater measure because God's word says that he is not stingy with his grace. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That he lavished on us. That chapter is talking about the fact that that God's plan of grace doesn't just get us in. God's plan of grace is something that he intends to, to shower us with for all eternity. 
He wants us to see the riches of His grace for all eternity. He wants us to see that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He rescued us. He wants us to praise Him for all eternity because though it's true that there is none righteous, not even one, no one seeking after God, God was seeking after you. If God is going to go to the lengths to give His own Son to seek you, Will he not continue to show us grace? And, and so, so don't let the experience of grace be this, this a past experience, a place that you go every once in a while. It needs to become a daily experience, something that we are resting in when our, when our eyes open in the morning, realizing that if we are going to live, if we are going to go through this day, if we are going to have any successes at all, it is going to be purely by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. Our text tells us that grace helps us to live the kinds of lives that God wants us to live. A man by the name of Thomas Chalmers was a pastor and theologian in Scotland in the 1800s, and he wrote a sermon, delivered a sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That's a good title, but expulsive, expelling something. And he was talking, the whole point of his sermon is talking about how will Christians pursue godliness? How will Christians pursue doing good? It's not just by the sheer effort of saying, okay, I'm going to not do bad things anymore. He was saying, you need new affections within you, new desires. If you're going to live an upright and self-controlled life, you're going to have to have new desires welling up within you. And if you have those new affections, those affections over time are going to push out the old affections. They're going to push out the desires for things that are ungodly. And I want you to see that he talks about exactly what our text is talking about this morning. Here's what he says. Thus it is that the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying is the gospel. And the more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more it will be felt as a doctrine according to godliness. Do you pick up what he's saying there? The freer the gospel, the more sanctifying, the, the more it's going to serve to make you holy. The more you receive grace freely for your salvation, the more it will become to you a gospel of transformation. He goes on to say this, salvation by grace, salvation by free grace, salvation not of works but according to the mercy of God, salvation on such a footing is not more indispensable to the deliverance of our persons from the hands of justice than it is to to the deliverance of our hearts from the chill and the weight of ungodliness. Let me read one more to you. I know these are wordy and you have to pay attention to them. I'm with you, but I think they're important. He says this, Never does the sinner find within himself so mighty a moral transformation as when, under the belief that he is saved by grace, he feels constrained thereby to offer his heart a devoted thing and to deny ungodliness. You see what we're talking about here? The more we receive the gospel of grace and the more you grow in the gospel of grace, the more it's going to push out those affections for wrong, and the more they are going to be replaced by affections for things that are right. 
God has shown us grace in Jesus entirely apart from the works that we do for him. And so my encouragement to you and my encouragement to myself this morning is that we should not be self-justifiers. Don't look back at your past experience of grace, but continue now in your inexperience of works. If you want to pursue the godliness that, that without and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, then you will have to pursue it by grace and by grace alone. Our problem, friends, is not that we have too much grace, but that we understand it too little. Grace is not like ice cream, something that's good to have in small quantities. Grace is something that we should have more and more in. Lastly, I want us to see this. Grace prepares you to meet Jesus. Grace prepares you to meet Jesus. Isn't that what our text says? Look again at verse 13. We're supposed to do these things. We're supposed to pursue holiness while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, grace is meant to have a shaping effect on you because it's driving you to a particular point. God doesn't save us in the past and give us a ticket to heaven and say, have a good time and wait. I'll be back. No, grace is supposed to have a shaping effect on our lives in such a way that we move forward and we're being prepared to meet him. We're waiting for Jesus to return. The Bible calls it a blessed hope. And biblical hope is not wishful thinking. We've said time and time again, biblical hope is a confident expectation Jesus is coming back, and he intends his grace to be changing me and to be changing you. Jesus told his disciples that even though he was going away, he was going to come back. We see here in John 14, 3, it says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. But because of the time that has passed... Many people scoff, question his return, and perhaps even we live in such a way. But God's word says this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming he has promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Yet 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 tell us this. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He also will do it. So rather than working like it depends on you, we can eagerly look forward to the return of Christ because it does not completely depend on us. The verse says we're looking forward to it, but faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. God will give us 
the grace to prepare us to meet him. And so we as Christians can echo what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. We as Christians are, are the people who long for his appearing. And we can look forward to it with such great hope because Jesus is preparing us for it. Our text also says that Jesus died to redeem us. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is coming back to receive his bride. And it's a church that he has redeemed, that he has bought, that he has paid the ransom for, that he has purchased with his own blood. That means, friends, that you are precious to Jesus. Do you believe that? Unfortunately, I, do, I actually think we don't believe that's true. We live in such a way that we don't believe that's true. But, but our scripture text talks about a people who are his very own. And he's coming back for his church. He's coming back for his bride, not because of the things that we have done, not because we are valuable in and of ourselves, but because he died to secure us. Now, doesn't that fill you with confidence? There is a good kind of confidence to have in the gospel. It's a confidence that realizes that Jesus Christ died to purchase you with his own blood. He redeemed you. He's coming back for you. And will he not freely with him give you all things? God doesn't want you to struggle with sin over and over and over again. He doesn't want you to be on the treadmill of creating your own self-righteousness. He wants you to move forward in the freedom of his grace, grace that he died to obtain. Our text says that Jesus is coming for us. He died to redeem us, and he died to purify us. The order here is crucial. He's coming back for those whom he has redeemed and thus purified. We're not purifying ourselves. Jesus is doing it. He redeemed us from wickedness to purify us, and the Christian life is a process of becoming like Jesus. Christianity never promises you that you will become a god. But it does tell you that it is a certainty that you will become like God. Because he died to ensure that it will happen. So this waiting for his appearing is not a a passive wait. It's not a waiting room kind of wait. Flipping through the magazines while you're at the doctor's office kind of wait. Watching Dr. Phil at the dentist while you're waiting for your name to be called. It's not that kind of waiting. It's the pursuance of being godly. And that's what our text is saying, right? We, we, should, we should say no to ungodliness, yes to godliness. God is trying to purify us. He's in the process of making us like Jesus. And so the hope of the gospel is not simply forgiveness, but transformation. 
And that transformation is driven, not a fear of his return, but a welcome of his return. So I think 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 captures it very well when it says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What he's saying there is, is right now, you are as much a child of God as you will ever be. And yet we're in this process where God is making us more and more like Jesus. And the problem, it, the problem with your inability sometimes to see Jesus is because it's, it's a vision crowded by sin. But the more we get a picture of Jesus, the more we're being made like him. And ultimately, you're going to be able to see him as he really is, not through a veil. But you're going to see him as he really is, because when he appears, we shall be like him. The truth is that when you truly understand grace, you don't want to be the way you are. And you don't want to stay where you were. And we don't have to be afraid of grace because of that truth. So I say in the take-home truth there at the bottom of the page, God wants your life to be shaped by grace. And so what I want to do, what I hope to accomplish this morning, is to encourage you in the gospel. I want us to live as if our ongoing relationship with God is day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, dependent on what Jesus has done. And the more we, t- we, th- we learn to rest, not in what we're doing at the moment, but in what Jesus has done for us, the more we're going to find ourselves slowly changing into the image of our Savior. There's a song that we sing here, and we actually sang it it last week, and we're going to close with it today. It's going to be our closing song. We're going to sing it as a closing prayer. But the song is this. I'll give you the last verse and, and chorus because I think it captures the ideas that we're talking about. It's this, grace abounding, strong and true, that makes me long to be like you, that turns me from my selfish pride to love the cross on which you died. Grace unending all my days, you'll give me strength to run this race, and when my years on earth are through, the praise will all belong to you. And the chorus is, is, is wonderful. Grace paid for my sins and brought me to life. Grace clothes me with power to do what is right. Have you ever thought of that when you were singing the song? It's grace that's clothing you with the power to do what's right. Grace will lead me to heaven where I'll see your face and never cease to thank you for your grace. I want us to stand together and sing that as a closing prayer to the Lord to give us an opportunity to respond to the grace that we've seen in Christ this morning.